0: in the story of Job. Job, I, I believe Job's confession makes it very clear that he always believed in a sovereign God. He always believed that God was in control before he went through his trial, while he was going through his trial, and even afterwards. And we'll see that continually evident. I've appreciated this opportunity to share from the book of Job. We've done it a, a little less conventionally, uh, Last time I spoke in November, I believe I covered 28 chapters. (laughs) I don't have as many chapters to cover this morning, but I promise I will fill the time just as well. The big idea for the book that we've been looking at is that the book of Job illustrates God's compassion and mercy to those who remain steadfast in the presence of trials. Not just Trials that seem to happen to us, trials that happen to us by the very hand of God Himself. And this is kind of the perplexing factor. How does a good and sovereign God give suffering and trials to those who are steadfast in their faith? Why does He do that? Joe Brussels with this. But God is sovereign and good in our trials and suffering. When bad things are happening, it does not mean Satan is winning. Isn't that sometimes what plays in our mind? Or You've seen the picture, the angel on one side, the demon on the other side. Who am I going to listen to? That's, That's not the picture we got in Job 1 and 2 of what's going on in heaven when God summoned Satan. He demonstrated that he was always in control. Even when he gave Satan permission to reach out and touch Job, Satan needed God's assistance because Satan did not have the power required to bring about the very trials, the evil that Job experienced. So God is in control of Satan. He's never losing to Satan. He rules over Satan in all things. Sin brought suffering into the world. But God is still sovereign over suffering, This is one reason why Job illustrates God's compassion and mercy to those who remain steadfast in the presence of trials and suffering. In fact, when I was reflecting over what we've already gone through, there were just some basic observations of God's goodness, that we know God is good. And, and the very first one, Job testifies to us in both Job 1 and Job 2, particularly in Job one21 and says that the Lord God gave, and the Lord has taken away. But, but what did God do before He took away? He gave. God gives good things. The only reason we experience grief, loss, suffering is because we've received something good. So God, rules over Satan and circumstances, but God also gives good things. One of the blessings and encouragements for Job during this wrestling time in his life is that he believed God does not change. See, that's really important. Circumstances change, all right? In Job's life, he experienced God giving him many good things. His circumstances, his situation was very good. It was superior to anyone who was living on the face of the earth. But Job's belief in God being good did not change when his circumstances changed. In fact, it was his belief in a good and sovereign and just God that kept him faithful through the trial. His hope was anchored in the fact that God would not change. And that the good God who blessed him was still ever-present, alive, sovereign, and in control. And he was trying to wrestle and figure out why his circumstances had changed so significantly. Because God didn't change, so why did Job's circumstances change? He doesn't know the things we know because we read Job 1 and 2. He will know those things in time. Another source of encouragement is that God provides a path through trials. God did not leave Job with no resources, no path, no system, no way to process and understand and to move through this valley that he was experienced. God provided a path, and that's kind of what we had focused a bit more the last time I spoke on this, is that wisdom, godly wisdom that we find in scripture, is the means of the path to keep us steadfast in trials. So how does someone remain steadfast? How does someone find this path? How does someone stay on this path? Well, by choosing the path of wisdom, it means that we're living out, we're applying the spiritual disciplines in our life. The spiritual disciplines is another way of talking about the things God has called us to do. We're living in faithful obedience. We are gathering together. We are reading his word. We are praying to him. We are singing praises to him. We are worshiping God, not just corporately. We are gathering our family together. Deuteronomy talks about the purpose of gathering your family together. Review these things. Repeat them constantly. We do it individually, privately. These disciplines are to be part of our very nature, changing our character and conforming us to Christ. You know, That process of wisdom, working out godliness is so important. I believe it is what helped secure Job's hope when he was going through these trials. Understanding that God's character doesn't change and Job's faith was not to waver. So as we went over those 28 chapters, the last time we kind of went through three different rounds of arguments with his friends. We took time to identify patterns. Patterns in Job's Arguments and responses to his friends' accusations, false accusations. They were accusing Job of a simplistic view of God or having the wrong view of God. That God always punishes because of sin. The only reason evil would come into someone's life is because of sin. That was their belief. They did not have a God who is sovereign and in control over evil and sin as well. And they also had a very simplistic view of justice that if Job just repented of this sin they accused him of, all would be restored. But as we know and as Job knew, that was not true to his situation. We observed a lot of patterns in Job as he wrestled through this situation regarding God's nature. He fought to remain steadfast. But his diseases, his losses, his suffering prolonged. Many people believe that leading up to the point where we're going to be here, where where God speaks into Job, most likely months have gone by since those initial incidences in Job 1, where everything began. So time is starting to wear him down, and Job is very human, all right? Job is not a superhuman. He is not a semi-God. Job bleeds. He is human, And he is suffering. And in his humanity, he is struggling with his circumstances. In fact, we saw this. We saw this in Job 19 as he started to question, is is God considering me his enemy? Is God's wrath against me? We saw it again in Job 30. He started to accuse God of acting like his enemy, of having his wrath against Job something important to understand here is that faith in a sovereign God does not prevent us from sometimes feeling bewildered or perplexed about what our sovereign God is doing. There's this this article by Scott Hubbard that I came across many years, and I've used it in counseling quite often. You ever read something, maybe it's something in a book, a passage of Scripture or something you heard on a podcast, and it just sticks to you, and, and, you, and you just come back to it, and, and it continually is able to feed you and feed you. And uh, I found that Scott Hubbard is one of those individuals who can put such deep truths and concepts, practical experiences that are very human, yet also incorporate our relationship with God and God's majesty. And so this, I thought of this, this quote from him, as I was working through Job, it, it gives us permission in our humanity to be bewildered, to be perplexed, as Paul, Paul used that term, "perplexed, because we don't know what God is doing. He hasn't revealed all things to us. We don't always know how next week is going to play out. We live very much in the present. In fact, when we're going through suffering in the present moment, we often forget about how God has brought us through suffering in the past, too our suffering makes us kind of nearsighted. We start to forget God's faithfulness from the past, and we forget about God's promises for the future. We hone in and and, and focus on our suffering. So Job is wrestling with this. His suffering is, is really taking a toll. And I imagine a lot of us can relate to this experience. Many of us have seen families ripped apart. Perhaps your family has been ripped apart. We've seen children brought up in the church abandon their faith. We've seen pastors, leaders, national Christian leaders abandon their faith. Christians are martyred more now around the world for their faith than at any other point in history. Christians are dying for what they believe. We've all had personal dreams and aspirations crushed, right? We've all experienced disease. Some of us perhaps have experienced poverty. Anxiety, depression. We've wrestled with and wondered what is God doing. Right? Have you never asked yourself that? Have you never pondered and wondered what is God doing? It's not wrong to ask that. In fact, it's, it's very good. It's, it's very appropriate considering the circumstances because what are you doing in your trial and your suffering? You're going to God with it. You're inquiring with him. He is the one you ought to respond to. He is the one you ought to go to in that suffering. Being bewildered or perplexed is natural. It is human. It is probably the right response to these tragedies. We are not created to be okay with the havoc sin has brought into this world or into our lives. If we were created to be okay with it, we wouldn't need to be saved from it, right? God wouldn't have created a path for eternal life to remove the suffering and trials from us. God in his goodness and sovereignty wouldn't have limited the extent of it. We weren't. Designed for this. And I'm thankful for the book of Job because it provides a very raw and a very honest illustration of what it means to remain steadfast in the presence of trials, to hope, to persevere, because God has purpose in his plan. And the ending is worth waiting for, the ending is worth fighting for. And I think that's what we see in Job. And it's beautiful in the book of Job, we get to see what accumulates in this wrestle and this journey that Job is in. So we finished up with chapter 31 the other week. Job was making his final plead before God, seeking to be vindicated by God and resting his hope, anticipating that soon he would die and be with the Lord. His hope was that if I won't be vindicated here on earth, then I know I will be vindicated by my God in his presence. So he rested his hope in being in the presence of God. I want us to be able to see God's presence in Job's suffering as he went through it. But I also want us to be able to potentially have better eyes for seeing God's presence in our suffering as well. All right? It's so much easier, it's so much clearer when someone else is going through it, isn't it? But when your emotions are being wreaked with havoc, it's so much harder to understand and see clearly what is God doing I hope that through this morning, we will be able to see and treasure God more deeply, particularly as we look at this first section where his friend, Elihu, finally responds. In chapter 32 through 37, his friend, the youngest of the friends, responds to Job's suffering. And what I want us to see here is that we can treasure God in a friend's rebuke. I don't know about you, but normally I don't like being rebuked. Anyone here enjoy being rebuked? Enjoy being confronted? All right, see me afterwards. You probably need counseling, okay? No, but, but being rebuked from my friend, that's actually a biblical principle. We ought to enjoy that. We ought to be able to see and treasure God through our friends who rebuke us by speaking the truth in love. Pastor Banks had referenced that and talked about that before. Proverbs 27 5 and 6 talks about that it is better to have an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. All right? A friend's rebuke is something to cherish, to treasure. What's interesting here is that Elihu first rebukes Job's friends as he responds in chapter 32. He rebukes Job's friends. He then rebukes Job, gets around to that. He rebukes Job as well. And Job telling him, God's not your enemy, Job. All right, I believe you. You didn't sin. You're not being punished for that. But just because your circumstance changed doesn't mean God's your enemy. But what's really interesting here is that the majority of Elihu's response is focused on praising God. 34, chapter 34 through chapter 37, it's all about praising God. You know, some of us, if we were in a conversation, all right, and let's say it's kind of a heated debate, we'll even make it a theological topic, all right, well, I think this, you think that, we're going back and forth, and then all of a sudden, one of the parties in the debate tells both of us we're wrong, and then instead of addressing the theological topic, just goes on for the next 30 minutes praising God, it'd be a little weird, right? It'd be a little, that's not how we debate things. You're getting off topic. You need to get redirected. There's actually a really good principle here. You know, so often we make our conflict about ourselves, about our desires, about our interests. Imagine if we had to praise God three times more than we had to talk about what upset us in a conversation. Well, one good thing would happen. There'd be a whole lot more worship and glorifying of God going on, and a whole lot less of us fighting and arguing. And so Eli focuses on praising God. And what's beautiful in these praises of God, it mirrors so many of the same things Job was praising God for. That's that's very comforting. You know, you you start to realize that your friend who is praising God is actually affirming the points you were trying to make the whole time. Affirming you of God's majesty, his justice, his goodness. So Eli affirms Job's righteousness and faith. He rebukes him, but he still affirms his innocence, his righteousness, and his faith. Isn't it such a source of comfort when God sends a friend along in the midst of your suffering. I think of like the Good Samaritan. Someone comes to help, to provide practical, in-person, not virtual, help. Foundations, uh, Christian Counseling, the the counseling ministry I also work with, recently lost one of our counselors a few weeks ago to a a tragic kind of a, a... unconclusive cause of death, I believe something heart-related. She was young, mid-40s, children, just weeks before Christmas. And as people shared testimonies at her funeral, one of the other counselors shared about her recent surgery. She'd, she'd recently gone through surgery, pretty intrusive surgery, and was in recovery. And people were, from foundations were set up and bringing meals by. Some of us traveling 30, 45 minutes to drop a meal off at her doorstep. But my friend Nicole, who passed away, when she came, this was just about three weeks before she passed away, when she came to our other counselor's home, she didn't just bring a meal. She barged into the residence, okay, uninvited, and began cleaning the home, every room. Now... For many of us, for those who are introverted, me as an extrovert, I'm praising God, you know, I'm worshiping, you know, like, yes, God has sent someone to do work that now I don't have to do, so I can go out and do something fun. My wife, introverted, is all of a sudden very ashamed if they begin to find out there's something dirty underneath the fridge, you know, don't clean under people's fridge unless they ask you to do that, you know, but, but people can have different responses, but regardless of whether you would welcome that or not welcome it, you're clearly understanding this person cares for you and is trying to help you practically, all right? And so she was kind of one of those individuals. And I think of Nicole as I think of Elihu or those who have responded to others going through tragedy and helping practically in that process. And so there was this comfort from Elihu who came. I also think it's really interesting that Elihu waited until the very end. Part of that is probably culture. He was the youngest, so he's waiting to the end. Uh, But I think there's also something important about those who remain faithful, believe that the end has not yet come. They're willing to be patient and wait. They're willing to endure. So wisdom encourages us to be less talking and more listening, right? And Eli, who is here demonstrating that wisdom, he listened patiently, and then he spoke. And his words were affirmed. In fact, I I believe very much the fact that Job responded to all of his other friends' accusations with arguments. Job does not respond to Elihu's arguments and response. I believe that demonstrates that Job agreed with Elihu. Elihu was seeing things correctly, and Job had already begun to humble himself and realize that he had elevated himself in accusing God of not being a friend of Job's. So Eli who comforts Job by speaking truth in love to him. And then the next chapter, something really beautiful happens. God speaks. Now, if, if I were to hear these words after a trial, it's probably not what I was looking for be honest. If you read through chapter 38 and 39, he's talking very much about creation. He's talking about animals and livestock, but he builds up to a rebuke as well for Job. So Job's friend rebukes him, and then God comes and rebukes Job, and I want us to be able to see and treasure God when he rebukes us as well, or friend rebuking you, or God is rebuking you, See God and treasure God through that. Count it as a blessing, a form of compassion. Now, what I do believe God's response accomplished is that it humbled Job and it magnified God, which is the appropriate response. However, our worldly wisdom, what the world is seeking to accomplish, is that the world looks down on this kind of thinking. They want to make much of themselves. And make little of God. But God has the perfect remedy for pride, and no one can escape his hand. No one can escape his rebuke and confrontation. If you know someone, or perhaps you struggle with pride, read Job 38 through 39 daily for 30 days and see if that doesn't resolve that issue of pride. So what Job recognizes is that God is asking questions too great for Job to answer. Job has no answer for these questions. And as I mentioned, it starts with creation, talks about weather, animals. In fact, I was particularly concerned in chapter 38, verses 22 through 23, because it references this storehouse of snow and hail reserved for the time of trouble. Snow and hail that God has reserved For the time of trouble, I don't want to be here that time. We get enough snow and hail as it is. But isn't that interesting? He's asking Job, Do you know where I store all the snow and hail for the time of trouble? I didn't even know he was doing that. (laughs) Verse 36 is also interesting. He asked Job, Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding? to the mind. Who, who gave you the ability to think, Job? Did you do that? Have you given anyone the ability to think, Job? Ah, oh, interesting. But just question after question after question. See, what's also interesting here is that we begin to see and surround ourselves with the mysteries of God. Our spiritual our, our perspective. Suffering narrows the perspective down. But when God is speaking to us, it helps to broaden our perspective again. And now, once again, Job is seeing and relishing in the mysteries and the majesty of God, things we don't understand or control. We can't give any better of an answer today, thousands of years, with all of our technology, with all of our advancements in science, we can't answer God's questions better today than Joe could back then. Because God is so much bigger than us, than we could even imagine in this process. Not only is he so much greater than us, but he is trustworthy. He is more trustworthy than we can imagine. And I, I particularly saw that in the sections that dealt with the livestock and the animals. Uh, particularly chapter 38 at the end, verse 39, and going through up to chapter 40. God has a plan for everything he created. And as he cares for them, talks about caring for the flowers, caring for the birds, caring for how livestock move throughout different regions, where they find their food, how they give birth or livestock or reproduce. I have a, a few chickens one cat, a dog, and two bunnies. And I find it difficult to care for that very limited. God cares for all living things, all right? Job had a lot of livestock. I think Job got it, you know? Like, Job knows the work, how many individuals he has to employ to care for all of his camels, all of his donkeys, all of these things. And you need someone who is qualified, who is trustworthy. You stop feeding Or watering an animal, it dies. (laughs) They require regular maintenance. God is trustworthy. He has a resume from before time of being able to care for things. He sustains life. What Job believed of God is true. That's the conclusion I think Job was coming to as, as he heard this. These questions too great for Job to answer what he realized is God really is as great as I believed him, but he's even greater than I had initially imagined or thought him to be. I remember back in Job 26, Job had taken a whole chapter to talk about God's majesty. In, in fact, some of the things that Job had said back then, he said, by his power, by God's power, He still deceives. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? You see, Job already believed this about God, and now God is affirming his belief, and Job finds comfort in that. Job is seeing God and treasuring God more clearly now through his suffering, through the rebuke that God has given to him, and God is more beautiful than Job or any of us could imagine. Job is seeing God's beauty revealed to him in a way that he's never experienced. The intimacy is growing at a level of complexity and closeness as he clings on to God through his suffering. In fact, I believe that God speaking to Job also affirms in Job's mind that Job is his friend. My friend has responded to my requests. Right? We don't like being held up. We don't like having people not reply to our inquiries. Friends typically get back to us, right? God is responding to Job and is a source of comfort. In fact, it's really interesting in Job 40, when, when, when he, f- he, he responds back uh, to God, uh, he says, Then Job answered the Lord, chapter 40, verse 3, and said, Behold, I am of a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth, I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He simply is going to be quiet and listen. Hearing God speak with comfort. God is more beautiful than we can imagine. In fact, it goes on. So Job is silenced once again, and chapter 40 goes on. And some of us are probably pretty familiar with chapter 40 because it, this is the chapter that talks about behemoth and Leviathan. But I, I want to pause and just consider a few things As Job is pondering the greatness and superiority of God above all other things, think back to perhaps Isaiah 55, where it talks about, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God will pardon Job. And Job repents. We'll read about that soon. And then it goes on For my thoughts, God's thoughts, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. All right? Here is this truth being played out practically and observationally in the life of Job. Now remember, Job was a man who feared God. He was righteous. He was the most spiritual and godly individual on the face of the earth. We are not Job, okay? We are more like Job's friends, not Elihu, the other ones, okay? Uh, and yet, we see that Job does not consider himself superior to God, even though Job may appear superior to his peers. He is not superior to God no one is, no one ever will be. And so we ought to be humbled when God speaks, just as Job responded with humility and remained silent to continue to hear. And that is the wisdom from the, from the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-11 reminds us of this truth. As it talks about wisdom from the Spirit, I'll pick up in verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Remember? Wisdom, the path for remaining steadfast through trials. Although it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Are you starting to see that Paul believed in God's compassion, in God's mercy? He says, we can't even imagine what God has planned for us. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So while you're wrestling with whatever trial, whatever suffering you're going through, and you're asking, and you're pondering, you're perplexed, and you're bewildered, and you're not sure what God is doing, go back. Isaiah 55, go back to Job 38, go back to 1 Corinthians 2, and remind yourself of who God is, and then let yourself be okay with not understanding what God is doing, and go on and worship like Job did, right? Job didn't understand what God was doing, but he worshiped, and he did not sin. That's what we get from John 1 and 2, or Job 1 and 2. So the big idea for this particular section, I had the big idea for the book, for this particular section, is that wisdom takes trials we face and turns them into a catalyst, an accelerant for seeing and treasuring God more. All right? That's what I love about the gospel. The gospel is not just about bringing you back to where you were, back to the good old days. The gospel is about taking you to somewhere far better Than you can imagine. Days you have not witnessed yet, but you will witness. And he has promised to all of those who profess him as their father. Seeing and treasuring God through the transformation of our suffering. God doesn't just remove it, he transforms it with. The remaining amount of our time. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly. First is that God blesses those who remain steadfast. Job sees God in, 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 in chapter 42, 1 through 6. It's really interesting, particularly verse verse 5. So he's responding back to God. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you, verse 5, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Now God is about to restore Job's possessions. He's going to restore aspects of his family. But I really believe what Job treasured, what he was blessed with most in that moment was a more mature faith and clarity and ability to see God for who he is, regardless of what Job is going through. Job was blessed by seeing God and understanding his work or, or the mysteries of what he is doing. Now, as an added cherry on top, verses 7 through 9 God rebukes Job's friends, right? That was one of those requests Job had made earlier on. I want to be vindicated now and later. <laughs> and, uh, and Job didn't think he was going to get vindicated now, but God does that. God rebukes his friends. And then God goes on to talk about, or the narrator talks about, what God then does to restore Job back with blessings. I believe Job is reminded of God's eternal life, of God giving him himself. Job is reminded that God is more precious than any possession, relationship, and life itself. Like, we will sometimes say that, and we might confess it, but until everything has been taken away, until Everyone you love has been taken away until you are on death's doorstep. We can't imagine how precious God can be. He is great and we worship him when he gives us good things. But do you know sometimes those good things distract us from the superior goodness of God himself? Right? I enjoy a lot of good things God has blessed me with. And sometimes they can distract us from the better things, like his word, his son, the greatest gift he's already given us, the discipline of being in prayer, of gathering together, the struggle of leading our children in worship. These are better things than other good things God has given us. God gives us eternal life, but ultimately God gives us himself. I don't know that we will all be rewarded like Job, have things restored to us like Job will. Many of us will take our suffering and trials with us, perhaps even to the grave. But it's important in our trials, there's another quote from, from the past I referenced, it's important in our trials that we recognize in our own moments of bewilderment, our role is not to know the ending of this story, but to wait for the ending and in the meantime, live as faithful characters, right? To wait, like Elihu, to be patient and wait for that ending. And as we wait for that ending, we continue to persevere. And I believe one day we will see Job in eternity, and he will tell us about how much greater his reward was in heaven than all the things God restored to him here on earth. And this is a promise for all of us. Perhaps our suffering will take us. Perhaps we will die for our faith. Revelations twelve ten through 11 says that victory will come against our accuser. We will all be vindicated by God, if not on this earth, then face to face with God. We are all called to remain steadfast in our faith, even unto death is the challenge we receive in revelations 2:10. Revelation or revelations through 3:11. Revelations 2:10 says reward us he will reward us with the crown of everlasting life. In a far greater place than any reward or reversal of suffering on this earth could compare to. We have to keep that eternal perspective. We have to learn to be patient and to wait to believe that the ending has not come. God has a plan for the here and now. He also has a plan for the ending. I sometimes get bored with watching a movie multiple times because I already know the ending. My wife, she has a handful of movies. She would watch them 10 times in a row. All right, She enjoys relishing and going through familiar movies, but not me. I want them new. I promise you. The ending God has prepared for us will never get bored of for all eternity. It will be so magnificent because he's giving us himself the greatest, most precious thing we could ever want or desire. It is the most compassionate and merciful response. And the book of Job illustrates that because it makes it about God, not about Job, not about his suffering, not about his friends, not about who's right and who's wrong. It makes it about God. To us, it may feel impossible for God to weave the frayed threads of our broken dreams into something beautiful. And from all human perspectives, worldly wisdom, it may be. But compared to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What feels impossible to us is a small thing for God. So while we are bewildered or perplexed, let us also be humbled in knowing that God's way are far superior. What he can do is far superior than what we can imagine. Don't doubt God's goodness and his sovereignty. Hold on to it. Remain steadfast. Let him develop a greater longing for you through the suffering. See, wisdom grabs a hold of our trials and circumstances with confidence because it believes God is good and sovereign. Wisdom believes in the power of the gospel to bring life out of death, to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. Wisdom believes in the power of the gospel to bring hope to the suffering and broken. Wisdom follows a path that has gone through every valley known to mankind since the beginning of time. Wisdom is a guide for us today. It speaks into our current problems. It speaks into the problems that our nation and the world is facing. Wisdom will always bring us back to the feet of Jesus. There's no better place to be when you're in the presence of trials than there. So let us be strengthened and encouraged through the book of Job. And let us be challenged that our perspective of God is far too small. And let us pray and pursue him through wisdom so that we may see him and treasure him so much more, particularly through the trials we face.